0: everybody. It is Saturday, June 6, 2020, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title podcast. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about car news, car culture, car whatever. And, uh, oh, I guess I should probably say my name up here at the top, too. It's uh, Brad Eiseldyke. So, uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's been a little bit since we've done one of these again, and uh, it has never seemed more frivolous to be doing a car podcast uh, than it does right now. And, um, In retrospect of everything that's going on, uh, the best that I can contribute here is by, uh, saying, you know, with great conviction that Black Lives Matter and that if you are not willing to say that, you are a part of the racist, uh, United States that we have to fix. And it is a huge issue, uh, read up, do your research, uh, you know, give a damn and maybe we can change some things. Uh, The other thing, of course, is the coronavirus stuff that is going on. Uh, We are about to be out of lockdown here in Michigan, for the most part, uh, in the next week or so. Uh, It has already been kind of in a weird transitional period, uh, and it has not been great seeing how people handle it. Uh, You know, also, as someone who still has been struggling to find, uh, you know, gainful full-time employment, it has also been a struggle to see things open back up and to uh, not have many opportunities in that sphere. So, you know, again, my 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 perspective on a lot of things that are going on right now are still pretty small compared to what is going on nationwide. And uh, yeah, we're just going to kind of stop talking about it right there. But uh, today's episode, at least when it comes to CARS, trucks, crossovers, and more, uh, we're going to touch on some car news. We've got uh, some news from BMW, from Ford, uh, and a few others about some stuff that's coming up in the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, and then the main section of the show today, we're going to talk about uh, crossovers, specifically the kind of tweener crossovers that seem to be coming out. Uh, you know, every brand seems to be filling a an increasingly small slot Uh, in terms of size, packaging, performance, uh, pricing, all that. But uh, there is a bevy of new ones that are coming out all within the same range that uh, I think are worth talking about because uh, some of them are starting to hit dealer lots here uh, right now and in the forthcoming weeks. So we'll touch on those as well. So anyway, guys, after the bump, we'll switch it up to the car news. So, first, up in the car news section, uh talking about what I think is probably the most divisive thing to happen in the car news industry and again it's one of those things where it feels entirely frivolous talking about this, but uh hey, you know, content i guess uh the new b m w four series uh photos have been leaking online for what feels like the last millennia, uh, but we are starting to see some more official Photographs, renderings, promotional materials, so on and so forth, and uh, it's not particularly great. Uh, The larger, longer kidney grills have been popping up on uh, BMW products uh, over the past year or so the new uh, X7 I think is probably the biggest offender, the new 7 series also being uh two example or another example of this new grill style. Uh but the four series seems to be the first indication of how this is gonna look on a lot of their new products. And uh it's not it's not very good. Uh the BMW 4 series is gaining a grill that, at least by my estimation, is probably at least two or more feet long, both of the kidneys on either side. Uh, it was interesting hearing, uh, Doug DeMuro and Matt Farrow talk about it on the Smoking Tire podcast last night. Uh, that episode, I think, is going to be posted about two weeks from now, but, uh, that, they were talking about it, and initially, they, the, the idea was kind of posited that, you know, this is being done for cooling, less for style, and then Doug pointed out, you know, with another one of the photos that kind of came along with it, uh, that you can see where the bumper is built in behind the grill. And it takes up, you know, 40 plus percent of that grill space. So in actuality, the grill does not need to be nearly as large as what it is. And, you know, people, I think rightfully, are worried about how this is going to look style-wise. I think people are rightfully concerned about how this is going to work in terms of, you know, when you get an accident, you know, it's not like you can replace some small part of the front clip. You're going to have to replace the whole damn thing. And, you know, it just looks ultimately very, very silly. Uh, I feel like, at least in terms of the press photos that got leaked, uh, the, the, what is it, the 440i, that one in particular with the twin turbo straight six, uh, looks it's the more aggressive sporty ones like the m sport package that one i think looks particularly bad uh the leaked photos of the new m four i think look extremely bad uh but the base trim model the lower uh i think it was a uh four twenty i or four twenty five i the the naming nomenclature of b m w is hard to keep track of uh the four twenty with the with the four cylinder and the base trim for, uh i thought looked less offensive. I think is a nice way to put it. Uh I think with without having all of the extra uh sporty scoops, uh aggressive uh trim underneath the vehicle, I think without having the the extra stylized headlights, it makes it look a little bit more approachable. It makes it look a little bit more like a classical BMW, but it's still it ain't it it isn't right. And uh, it's really sad, because I think the outgoing 4 uh, Series and 3 Series as well are very... I'm not going to say that they're the best-looking BMWs of all time, uh, but they're definitely not bad-looking, uh, to say the least. And it just really is an interesting style move. Uh, I seem to remember I don't remember if I read something or somebody in an auto review on YouTube was talking about it, uh, but they were talking about how the large grills are a big thing uh, in China and in much of the Asian market right now. And with so much sales growth happening in Southeast Asia, uh, this is being done to kind of cater to that market. Um, it's very interesting, of course, because it seems to be the exact opposite of what uh, North America and Europe seem to like, and, you know, I don't know if BMW necessarily is super concerned about Europe and North America, their two most traditional markets anymore, just because uh, they're looking for that growth opportunity. Um, You know, if, if we're gonna draw this out on paper, and this is probably getting far too out in the weeds, but, you know, if they're gonna lose let's just say 10% of sales in North America, but they have the opportunity to grow sales in, you know, Southeast Asia by 20 or 30%, you know, that's going to be made up for and put upon uh, with these new sales figures. And I think in the end, you know, they're just going, this is going to work out much better for us in the long run, uh, you know, style choices be damned. I think the other thing too is that BMW kind of looks at things that have happened in the past. So thinking back to, um when they had the stuff with Chris Bangle, with the Bangle Butt, on um, the 6 Series and the 7 Series that people really didn't like. Uh, they, people really did not like the flame surface design that was on the Z4 uh, at the time. And, you know, people were up in arms, and yet the cars still sold really, really well. And you know, as much as people get angry about BMW doing the right or wrong thing, the other part of this equation is, too, to some extent, is that these are not people who are buying these BMWs brand new. They're buying them secondhand, thirdhand, on down the road, who are most passionate in air quotes about what BMW is doing. Uh, the typical person who's buying these four series, maybe the new X3, maybe the X5, or whatever else uh, they're your you know dentist, they're your lawyer. They are your, uh, young professional who wants to be seen in the new young professional vehicle, uh, and, you know, they don't care about the driving dynamics, they don't care about the passion that the brand promotes, they don't care about any of that. They just want to be seen in a BMW, and that's it. And I think BMW is going, those customers aren't going to care because they still want that blue and white spindle on the hood. So... Be as mad as you want. Uh, It's not going to change anything. Uh, And if it's truly bad, if they do see a massive sales decrease uh, with this style, uh, I would be willing to bet BMW would fix it fairly quickly. But uh, based on previous vehicles that had these style decisions made, uh, don't, don't get your hopes up. Now, speaking of a vehicle that is now going to have a large vehicle and is getting a massive style change, uh, there's been a lot going on with the next-gen Hyundai Santa Fe. Uh, the car bowed in, uh, Korea and Europe. Uh, the new Santa Fe is, what's a good way to put this? It's really confusing to kind of talk about what's going on with this crossover. Now, for, you know, sake of sake, uh, here, I really, really like... The current Santa Fe. I think it is near enough the perfect size. I think it is very close to giving you the perfect amount of equipment per dollar compared to many other vehicles out on the road today. Uh, I think it is one of the best looking crossovers out on the road today. Uh, and I am very excited for what's coming up with this new Santa Fe, uh, because it is taking a lot of what they've learned from that particular vehicle and applying it to a new architecture. So, Bear with me, because I'm still kind of confused about how all this is going. So this is the new Santa Fe. The current one's only been out on sale for two years, uh, which is an exceptionally short amount of time uh, in the marketplace. Uh, the new Santa Fe has sold fairly well. It's really been one of the first vehicles, I think, to pound the countertop and say that we are here and that uh, we're going to take the fight to Honda and Toyota in a way that they were not prepared for. This new Santa Fe uh, is taking... I, from what I understand, it's getting an all-new front grille, hood, rear uh, back, rear quarter panels, rear hatch, rear lights, all that stuff. The interior in the vehicle is largely going to carry over, but it's been adapted to use the new, what is it, 10.25-inch screen and an optional 12.5-inch touchscreen on the center dashboard. Uh, the driver's instruments are now going to be a full LCD screen instead of the mix of uh, physical gauges and a small LCD screen. Um, But the doors, uh, the roof panel, uh, those are all going to carry over from the current Santa Fe. But then underneath, the car is going to be based on an all-new chassis uh, that is derived from the current Sonata, the all-new Sonata uh, that just hit streets earlier this year, and will also underpin the new uh, Kia K5 that's coming out uh, to replace the Optima later this year. So, I'm a little confused as to how all this works, simply because I don't know if I've ever heard of a unibody car coming out that is a different structure, but the same if that makes sense, like, you know, it's not like you can take, like, a B-body Chevy Caprice. You know, that's a good example. Body, B The GM B-body basically was an un- unchanged platform from the late 70s until the late 90s, and the body style of the Caprice changed, what, three, two different times, and then you had the Impala SS. Uh, that was a thing where, you know, you could trace the lineage of the vehicle, you know, and you could take the body off the frame and do what you want... But that's not like what you can do with, like, a Honda Civic or, like, a Toyota Corolla where, you know, the roof and the side panels and the trunk and all that stuff is all together as one piece with the what we, we would understand as the frame of the vehicle. So I'm not sure how you take current Hyundai bits and bobs and put it in an all-new architecture unless that architecture was designed to be largely the same it's just on a new platform, which, you know, I mean, hey, you know, maybe the people at Hyundai are more than capable of doing that, and that's, they just went, fuck the price, fuck the cost, you know, we want this on the new architecture so we can do new things, and hey, you know, more power to them. Uh, I, I am very excited by what the, what's going to potentially be changing with this vehicle. For one, it's got a much larger grille, uh, kind of brings it in line with the styling that's on the uh, Kona and Palisade to some extent, as well as the new Sonata. It brings in a lot of t- new technology from the Sonata, uh, and apparently it's going to make the new Santa Fe capable of having more powertrains uh, beyond the current, uh, what is it, the standard is a 2.4 liter inline-four, I think, and then an optional 2 liter turbo. Uh, this new platform is going to be able to take the engine and transmission from the Sonata hybrid and put it in to this vehicle, uh, so that would be, what is it, a 1.6 liter turbocharged engine, or 1.6 liter engine, and the uh, fancy electrical bits, I think, is supposed to somehow go in there. Maybe that's going to be adapted for a larger displacement uh, four-cylinder engine. That would seem like we would be fairly likely. Uh, It sounds like in Europe they might also be getting a plug-in hybrid variant of this vehicle um, that we might not end up seeing in the U.S., but here's the other thing. Hyundai hasn't confirmed what exactly this is going to mean for the American market. Uh, The Santa Fe is built alongside the Sonata and will be built alongside the new Veracruz uh, pickup truck in the uh, very near future. So, or is it Veracruz? Santa Cruz? Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz pickup truck in the very near future. So that'll all be done in Alabama. So I'm sure we'll find out more details as the year progresses, Uh, but it's pretty exciting. And I'm very excited because... I really like what Hyundai's doing. I really like the current Santa Fe quite a bit. Uh, I've been keeping an eye peeled for what used car values are on those because, uh, I think used with like, you know, like, let's say it was like a lease return on like a two-year vehicle. It's going to be a really good deal because that has got so many great standard features. It's got really good, uh, or is it auto, uh, lane keep assist. It's got really good, you know, highway stop, start driving. It's got really good, uh, pedestrian. I mean, it's, It's a great, great vehicle, and making it just that little bit better, uh, I think, is really going to do a lot for it. So uh, that, I think, is some pretty exciting news. Uh, Continuing down the news segment, we do have a word from Ford that, for sure, next month we are going to be finding out what the new Bronco is all about. Now, the question mark I would like to add to that declaration from Ford is, does that include Broncos? Uh, the the, the press release, I think, is honing in on the Jeep Wrangler contender Bronco, not the Bronco Sport that's based on the Ford Escape. Uh, but, uh, knowing finally for sure what this thing is going to be, I think, is fairly exciting for a lot of people, just because the Wrangler has largely existed in a market uncontested for seemingly ever, and, uh, having Ford actually commit to building something that's going to go up against it, I think, is very very exciting. That being said, you know, how much more are we going to learn beyond what we've seen from spy photographs, from all these different leaks that have been going on for just like the BMW seemingly forever. Uh, I think that kind of remains to be seen more or less. I'm I'm assuming they're going to talk uh packaging type stuff, they're going to talk maybe I maybe potentially pricing, I don't know. They keep saying that the Bronco is going to be available at the end of the year, so they've got to talk about it at some point. Uh, and I think, you know, they're just gonna basically be confirming things that we already know. You know, it's, it's based on the Ranger platform. Uh, it has an independent front suspension. It has, uh, I don't think it has coilovers in the rear, so I think it is still leaf springs. Uh, it will have, uh, you know, locking center differential, locking rear differential. I don't think it'll have a locking front hub, uh, You know, it's got the 2.3 liter inline-4 that's shared with the uh, Ranger and the Mustang and so many other things. It'll have standard 10-speed automatic. It sounds like it's going to have a 7-speed manual as an option, uh, and it will be available in two or four doors uh, as a convertible top thingamajig like the Wrangler. So, I mean... Basically, if you know what Jeep's doing, you've got an idea what Ford's doing, and, you know, I will say this, uh, the Ranger is still a very, very good truck, and it is a good truck that I like quite a bit, simply because there's not a lot of shit going on, and by that I mean there's one engine, there's one transmission, um... There's a couple of different packages you can get, but you can still create a very different truck from what other people have, and I think that's pretty cool, and I'm hoping that they do that with the Bronco to some extent. Uh, I think the aftermarket is going to be very interesting for this vehicle as well, and I have a feeling that many a Bronco are going to be converted uh, to some kind of V8 powertrain in the near future because... You know, we we li- we live on a on an infinite circle where <laughs> everything either gets an LS or a Coyote V8 at this point, and I see no reason why Ford either wouldn't do it themselves or they'll hand it off to somebody else to take care of it. So, uh, we know that the press conference is in July. Uh, July is a very long month uh, that is also the better part of a month away. Uh, so, when we know more, we will say more. Uh, yeah, and then just one last note about the Broncos. We're going to talk about that more a little bit later in the show, so... Uh, We'll just kind of step off from that. And then last up, uh, in terms of news that's kind of been happening this week, uh, a story came out about GM and EVs. Uh, As you guys may remember, there was a story a while ago about how GM uh, has this new battery technology, this new platform, these new motors that they're going to be working on in the next uh, coming years. They are already planning to release a number of vehicles to the market. Uh, through brands like Cadillac, Chevrolet, uh, Buick. Pretty much everyone's going to get an electric car within the next couple of years, all based on this technology. And GM's also going to be sharing that technology with Honda to develop future uh, EVs uh, just to help them save costs and to help, uh, you know, just make cooler and cooler stuff. Uh, But news came out this week that GM is getting into the electric delivery van segment. So they are planning on making a commercial fleet vehicle, uh, based on this architecture with these batteries, with these motors, uh, and they're going to be sold directly to UPS and Amazon, uh, in the coming, I'm going to say year or two. Uh, there was no timeline given as to when these things are going to hit the streets. We just know that they are being worked on and they are being, uh, I guess pre-ordered by these two companies. And it's really interesting because, uh, least for one, you know, UPS hadn't really made a commitment to anybody um, about an electrified van concept, but they have been working continuously to improve their delivery vehicles to be uh, more and more efficient. Uh, There was a whole thing a while ago. Remember how UPS vans used to have those really square, flat front ends? Uh, I believe it made those vans significantly cheaper to manufacture, it made them significantly cheaper to repair, um, but they were bricks when it came to aerodynamics, and so then, uh, UPS started rounding out the front ends of their delivery vehicles, and it saved them as a company, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in fuel costs each year, which is insane to think about, uh, but, you know, adding, transitioning to an electric, uh, thing, I, I assume would be a big boon for them as well, just because you're not having to pay for diesel or gasoline that runs so many of their vehicles. Uh, I think what's going to be interesting here is what kind of duties these delivery vans are going to do. Are these are these going to be transitioning to replace the very large format shipping trucks, or are these going to be uh, kind of brought in to replace the uh, sprinter van fleet that you seem to be seeing a lot more of? Uh, because the other thing is that Amazon is apparently going to be buying these vehicles from GM as well. Uh, That is an interesting thing, mostly because Amazon uh, is a large shareholder in the Rivian electric vehicle company, and Rivian is also developing a delivery van uh, for Amazon and will somehow be the basis for some kind of Ford delivery van in the future. Uh, So Amazon is really hedging their bets here on who can do what, and it's interesting to note that they are going to basically be paying both themselves and a competitor Uh, to get these projects up off the ground. And I think that kind of paints a picture, too, of how expensive not only fuel is for these vehicles, but also maintenance. And with electric vehicles largely costing, you know, thousands less a year when it comes to, you know, brake pads, uh, you know, no oil changes, no transmission fluid changes, no uh, any coolant, any of those things. You know, you don't really have to worry about that. You're just worried about plugging them in, changing the tires, and occasionally changing the brake pads and rotors. That's about it. Uh, So, we'll see what happens. I think it's pretty exciting. Uh, It's also going to be interesting to see what these vehicles look like once they go back out, presumably onto the used market. Um, These things converted, I think, to our uh, civilian use with extra seats, with other things like that. Hell, turning them into camping rigs, I think, would be a very interesting thing. So, this could spell a pretty interesting future. And, you know, I think there were a lot of comments from people on the internet, uh, whether it was on Twitter or on Jalopnik or whatever else, where they touched on how uh, it's interesting how GM keeps coming out with all these electric vehicle promises, and yet there is zero sign at any point that we are going to be getting a new electric vehicle in the future. Uh, And that really seems to be ringing true. Um, They have this huge press event. When was that? March, early March, end of February, where they talked about how, uh, you know, they got this new platform, they got all these batteries, we got all these new models coming, and they didn't show any pictures of any of the things, uh, but they let the press talk about them, uh, which I continue to find extremely frustrating. Uh, They laid out their plans for what they want to do, but nothing shown off in any way, shape, or form. Uh, You know, they, they continue to dole out information about, you know, updates to the Chevy Bolt and the Bolt EUV that's supposed to be coming out potentially later this year, yet there's pretty much nothing at all going on right now with these things. Uh, It's very frustrating Uh, because GM, you know, I come from a GM family. I've got GM Stockholm Syndrome to the nth degree. As much as I would largely say right now, and these words can come back to haunt me to some extent, I probably wouldn't buy any GM vehicle that's currently on sale right now. Now, that being said, there's a few exceptions to that in some different ways, shapes, and forms, but I can't think of a singular GM vehicle that's necessarily better than anything else in the market, uh, and that's really frustrating. But that being said, the Bolt is still a very good car, and GM has done a lot of really good stuff with EVs, and I think when they put their noses down, they do the hard work, they make some good cars. And, I'm excited to see what these electric vehicles are going to be. Whether it is a fleet thing for UPS or it is, you know, a new electric Buick in my neighbor's driveway, uh, it's exciting. And GM, you know, like I said, they do good work when they want to do good work. And I think there seems to be at least some level of indication that they are willing to do good work uh, coming up. So, After all that has been said, uh, we're going to take a little break, and we are going to talk about some new small crossovers out here uh, on the streets. Um, Yeah, anyway, see you guys in just a moment. All right, are you guys ready to talk small crossovers? It feels like crossovers are... The only thing really worth talking about anymore because, honestly, that's all that's really coming out uh, from any brand these days, and uh, it's frustrating. I feel like I am being worn down slowly but surely to start liking crossovers. Uh, and there are some key examples as to why. I mean, these are going to be largely the ones I'm going to talk about. So some of these are already available uh, at dealerships. Some of them I have seen in person, I've touched, I've sat in. Other ones I don't really know a whole lot about quite yet. So uh, we're going to kind of just go through them, talk about what's good, what's bad, and maybe what ones might be good to buy uh, later in 2020 or early 2021. So kicking things off are two... At least one and a half that I kind of know some stuff about. That is the Buick Envision, uh, or sorry, uh, the Buick Encore. Oh my gosh, not the Envision. We, there is a new Envision coming and it is very, very cool. I didn't put in the news segment, but go look it up on the internet. It looks fantastic. But the new Buick Encore GX and the Chevy Trailblazer. Uh, now these are vehicles that are kind of, sort of, meant to replace the current Encore and Chevy Trax, but also not replace those vehicles because they're going to continue selling those, but also not replace the larger, I guess, well, Buick doesn't really have, I guess it's the Envision, uh, but Chevy, you know, they want to keep it off the Equinox. It's very confusing as to why this is. And you're going to see this kind of thing kind of going on here is that a lot of these vehicles are parsing incredibly small, razor-thin pieces of the market share uh, for crossovers for s u v s for small cars, for many other things um but yeah, anyway, back to the uh encore g x and the trailblazer so these vehicles, I think are kind of sort of meant to be the replacement. For the Cruze, uh, in the Verano, in the Buick and Chevrolet lineup. Um, these things are based on an all-new architecture that was developed in South Korea. Uh, they are using all-new engine platforms that we have not seen in the U.S. before. Uh, the base engine is a 1.2-liter three-cylinder engine that is turbocharged, and the larger engine option is a 1.3-liter turbocharged engine. Uh, both of them, I think, make a little bit under 200 horsepower. Uh, the Lower one, I think, is only in front wheel drive. The bigger one can be available with all wheel drive uh it's 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 a lot that's going on with these things. uh The Buick Encore GX is at dealerships now. Uh, the Trailblazer, I think just started hitting dealerships uh, as early as this past week um, It's an interesting thing to see these vehicles rolling out with almost no fanfare um, as far as I could tell online, uh, almost no press companies have driven these vehicles. The only one who I've heard talk about their drive experience is Consumer Reports. Uh, They bought an Encore GX front-wheel drive. I think it's the Essence trim, which is like a mid-tier trim. Um, with the 1.3 liter turbo and the 9-speed automatic. Uh, the, the the people who talked, at least on their podcast, remarked that it kind of seems to split the difference between a lot of people, where on the one hand, I think some of them say they really like the size of it, they like the style of it, they like the... Uh, roomy, airy nature that the interior has, and I can definitely say, as someone who's been in a couple different trims of the Encore, I really like the way the interior looks and feels. There's a lot of headroom, uh, in the lighter colors. It's very open and airy. If you get that panoramic sunroof, uh, you have got a great view of the world up above you. Um, really, really impressed with this vehicle overall. Um, But other criticisms from some of the reviewers, at least on Consumer Reports, talked about that the uh, 1.3-liter turbocharged engine is very coarse. Uh, It is not very fast. It is working perhaps a little too hard to do what it needs to do in some instances. Um, Other criticisms that they had were of the transmission, that it's inconsistent, Uh, and at least one of the reviewers said that they did not like the ride quality of the Buick, uh, that it was a little too firm, a little too sporty, which is weird to think of, of a Buick, while another one of the reviewers said that, Uh, She really liked how it rode and how it was sporty and that it was a very agile, decently sized crossover. And I think that's really kind of the main takeaway I had, at least with the Envision, or excuse me, the Encore GX, I'm going to keep getting these E names mixed up, Uh, is that, you know, it's not a huge vertical step upward. And I think that's really the main problem I have with a lot of crossovers is I do not like riding up high. I genuinely prefer to be as close to the ground as possible. Uh, This is all based on years and years and years growing up in Maximas and Preludes and Mazdas and so many other things. I like being down low and feeling a little more sporty. And in the Buick, I think it's pretty low for a crossover. Not the lowest crossover I've ever been in, but, you know, it's down there. And uh, I I genuinely am curious to know what this thing would be like to drive. You know, the the reviews are good. That's always a good thing, but uh, hearing that the, ro- the ride is a little flinty, you know, doesn't inspire a lot of confidence uh, for someone who'd be looking to buy this uh, living in Michigan, where the roads themselves are flinty, and uh, you're probably going to get shaken to death in some instances uh, around different parts of the state. I'm thinking of uh, roads in Ann Arbor right now that I, I would probably lose a tooth filling in if that thing is too choppy. Uh, on the flip side, the sister vehicle, the Trailblazer, is... Uh, it, it it has just hit dealerships. Uh, I have not read any reviews of the vehicle. I don't know if anybody has tested it quite yet. Uh, typically, the guys over at TFL uh, have this stuff, like, first, and they talk about it first, and... Uh, I haven't seen anything from them quite yet talking about it, so I guess we're going to have to make some assumptions based on the Trailblazer. Uh, the Trailblazer, of course, is, uh, based on the same chassis as the Encore GX. It uses the same powertrains. Uh, really the main difference between the, uh, Encore GX and the Trailblazer is that the Trailblazer, I think, is going to be a little more soft, and when I use the word soft, I think it's because they're trying to build this thing up more as an actual usable crossover type thing, uh, especially with the active trim that's got the body cladding. It's got the little bit more off-road tire option on it. Uh, I I definitely say it looks the part a little bit more. And it also apes some of the styling cues from the larger Blazer SUV, um, which you know, if you've been listening to my podcast for a long time, you know I have a very troubled history with the Blazer. I love the way it looks, uh, I've heard that it drives actually fairly well, but, uh, the interior to me is not great, and I would not necessarily recommend buying one. Also, the price is just astronomical for a vehicle that, you know, doesn't really hit the mark in a lot of different ways, uh, and you can go back to previous episodes of the show where I I talk about it at length, but the, the Trailblazer seems to kind of hit a sweet spot. Now, that being said, the hard part, uh, for the Trailblazer, and I think the Encore GX to some extent as well, is that the pricing is really all over the board. Um, you can get a base trim Encore GX for, I think it's in the, like, the low-mid 20 grand range is where they start. You do get a lot more standard features in the vehicle. It is a much nicer vehicle overall compared to the Trailblazer. But the Trailblazer is also starting in the same neck of the woods, and dollar for dollar, when you start adding up things that you're going to get standard in, you know, something like the Kia Seltos or, uh, you know, the Hyundai Kona or the Tucson, uh, you are quickly marching up to 30 grand and going past it in both of those vehicles. And at those price points, I, I feel like they're less of a good deal. And again, that being said, you know, GM is obviously well-known for taking significant discounts uh, off the top of their vehicles just rolling into the dealership, uh, let alone what other kind of deals the dealership themselves might be willing to put on top of them. Um, so you very likely could get one of these things for significantly less than what the MSRP is. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, someone like my grandpa who gets not only a discount through GM uh, from his brother, but also a discount at the local dealership chain because he works for the company that owns that dealership chain, uh, you know, he's often taking 25-30% off the top of a car, uh, before he even rolls it off the dealership lot. Something like that, you know, when you start saying, you know, you're taking nine grand off, now you've gone from a $30,000, you know, Chevy Trailblazer LT to a $22-$23,000 SUV out the door with taxes that makes a little bit more sense, and that, I think, is a little bit more of a comfortable place for a lot of folks to be in, um, because, you know, in the end, these aren't going to be made quite as nice, and again, I'm guessing a little bit, uh, compared to, say, a Toyota RAV4, uh, a Honda CRV. uh, th- th- there's just not really the same thing. And, you know, I think the other thing, too, is that the track record that GM has had with some of these things over the years hasn't been particularly great either. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the, uh, the Chevy Equinox, the GMC Terrain. Um, they just don't really seem to have it together on those, and they, the newer generation is better, yes, but, It's still a cheap little rattle basket that, you know, they're pumping out on lease prices, uh, getting you to return it, hope they sell it used, and then, you know, collect some money and repairs later on down the road. So, we'll see. I'm really curious, though, about that Trailblazer. Uh, If you know somebody at GM at Chevy press person who can get me one of these things to test for uh, a while. I'd really like to take a look at the uh, Trailblazer uh, LT or Active uh, just because it's a good-looking little crossover, and I think it's a really good size, especially based on what uh, I know of the Encore GX. So, yeah, I think that's definitely one to be a little bit excited about. Uh, Moving on uh, to their competitors across the way in Detroit uh, is Ford. We mentioned the Bronco sport up top in the news section, and we 'll talk about the Bronco sport now um, there's still a little bit of a mystery of going on with this thing in terms of what exactly they mean to uh compete against with this because on the one hand, it is based on the Ford Escape, um, which is a modular architecture that you know has gone under a couple of other things um We may or may know what for sure is going on next month, but I'm not getting my hopes up. Um, It's a fair bet that the uh, Bronco Sport is going to be using the same 1.5-liter turbocharged engine from the Escape, as well as an optional 2-liter turbocharged engine also from the Escape. Uh, Probably both of them mated to, what is it, uh, it an 8-speed automatic, I think, that they use uh, in these. Uh, I don't know if they're going to sell them in 4-wheel drive or front-wheel drive, uh, but for sure there's going to be a 4-wheel drive option. Um, the trim names have leaked online for the Bronco Sport. Uh, Really, the only trim that I've been curious about, because there was a news story the other day um, about it, is the Badlands one. Uh, That is the base trim of the Bronco Sport, and apparently it's coming with some pretty aggressive all-season all-terrain tires on it. Um, They are, uh, what are they? They're Falcon, I think, all-terrain tires. Um, So that's setting a precedent that they mean to kind of be off-roady from the start. And I guess it's going to be Steelies, too, on the pace trim. Um, but it sounds like these are going to use some kind of terrain response control type system, uh, compared to, like, what, like, the Raptor has. Uh, you know, Ford's setting these things up to be, I think, pretty competent off-road vehicles. And I guess in my brain, I'm kind of thinking of them as the spiritual successor, uh, to the old Land Rover LR2. Um, I, like many, well, maybe unlike many individuals, uh, really, really like the Land Rover LR2. Um, I think it was one of those crossovers that kind of was the right size, it had the right powertrain and everything at the right time, uh, but it just really got passed over because, well, you know, Land Rover builds not very good products and they were notoriously unreliable for the first, I think, three or four years that they were out in the market. So... Hopefully, the Bronco Sport is a little bit better, but, you know, I I think the other curiosity I have about the Bronco Sport, again, is, you know, if you're really committing to this off-road capability out of the box, you know, what does that reflect in terms of pricing? What does that reflect in terms of who you're going after? Because, truthfully, the kind of weird thing is that Jeep has two different vehicles that compete in the same price and size bracket. Um on the one hand you've got the Compass um which is based on a stretched platform that came from the Renegade um really dimension-wise, you know, it's maybe a little bit wider, it's a little bit longer um but it's actually lower in terms of overall height and I like the Compass quite a bit uh just because you know it looks good. It's actually fairly capable off-road and we're going to talk about the Compass here in a second at length, but you know dollar for dollar I think if you live in a snowy climate it's not the worst thing you could get. That being said, for like 1500 to two grand more, you can get a Cherokee. So I think the Bronco sport, to some extent, is going to compete more with the Cherokee, but the Cherokee itself is kind of in between vehicle sizes too. I, it's a very confusing spot. So if this new Bronco sport kind of sort of competes with the Trailblazer, you know, active,, uh, great. But, you know, the Active is one trim level of the Trailblazer. If it competes with the Compass or the Cherokee, great. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can go in those different things. But, you know, if Ford, again, like I said, is really committing to the off-road nature of this vehicle, what kind of premium does that call for? Is it like a grand? Is it two grand? Um, We've already seen how they've really priced the EcoSport and the Escape I think unjustifiably high. Like, ridiculously high. Uh, I I think the last time I built a Ford Escape SE, a mid-trim model. My neighbor just got one. They traded in their previous generation Escape. Uh, They've now got a brand new one. The window sticker on that, I think, was just short of $30,000. Not just the one that they had, but the ones that I built online. And that's crazy for what you get in that vehicle. Uh, especially when it's kind of sort of meant to be a Focus replacement. Um, You know, if that, you know, $30,000-ish vehicle is now $32,000 with mostly the same equipment, it just happens to have a little bit more of an off-road capability, I don't know if it's really worth it. Yeah, the square shape is cool. Yeah, the Bronco heritage is cool. You know, it's going to be fun to call them Bronco 3s, I guess. But in the end, I... I don't know if the value's there, and that's going to be what's going to be interesting to see as it develops later in the year because, again, I think based on all the leaked photographs, all of the leaked information about uh, the Bronco Sport and the Bronco itself, I think they're going to be really good contenders in a market, especially going after Jeep, uh, a company that has been really unrivaled in terms of competition in many different ways for such a long time. Uh, Ford I think has a good chance of taking them on and taking some sales away. But, you know, at what cost? <laughs> you know, that what what is the cost I'm gonna have to, to 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 dig out of my wallet? Because um if it's anything more than what a Jeep is, I I don't think it's gonna be worth it in any way, shape, or form. So yeah. Um speaking of Jeeps, we'll kinda go back across to another part of the uh city of Detroit. Uh the Jeep Compass. It's a weird little thing. Um, you know, like I said. Based on the Renegade, longer, um, I think a little bit more usable day-to-day, simply because it has uh, that little bit of extra space behind the front row seats. It's still lower, like a car, which I personally like quite a bit. Um, They're changing a few things up for 2020, Uh, first of which is the 2.4 liter Tiger Shark engine is still going to be available, but in both the Renegade and the Compass, they are switching to a 1.3 liter turbocharged inline-four. Uh, that's gonna be the new business, I guess. Uh, this engine is, uh, got a much fatter torque curve. I think the horsepower might be down just a little bit, but it's that torque that really matters because, take it from me, somebody who had a Renegade for, uh, a few years with, uh, that belonged to my partner, that Tiger, that Tiger Shark engine was barely adequate in most situations. Uh, it just did not have the get up and go that it needed, uh, for a vehicle of that size, and for all the noise that it made, uh, speed never came with it, so hopefully this little turbocharged engine, uh, does enough to fix that problem, but, you know, I think the other big question is, you know, what kind of long-term reliability does it have? Um, Fiat, you know, doesn't always have the best of, uh, the best of a quality record, I guess is a nice way to say that, um. So you know, it's not to say that the 1.6 liter turbocharged engine that's been in however many different things isn't a reliable thing, but uh, you know, it's it's not a Toyota 1.8 liter four cylinder engine either. So you know, we'll see what happens. And I think I think with an engine that small, with a vehicle that big, it's it's taxing it in a way that isn't necessarily good. And I mean these things are usually cheap as chips. They get tossed out anyway, so I I don't know. It seems like that's more of a problem for owner number three than it is for owner number one, at least with a three-year warranty. Um, The other big thing is that they still haven't gotten the nine-speed automatic fixed. Uh, They're still using that same get rag unit um, that has been nothing but trouble for not only Fiat uh, Chrysler, but also Honda, uh, Land Rover, so many others. Uh, It's just a bad system. Um, Jeep apparently has retuned them again as early as 2019 for the Cherokee, uh, which apparently has fixed a lot of the issues. I think, I'm assuming, that the Compass and the Renegade also got that update for 2020. Uh, So we'll see if that improves also with having a little bit more torque from that turbocharged engine, um, but based on some tests that uh, have been published and some comments on Twitter about the current uh, Fiat 500X with the new turbo engine and the new transmission, uh, it's still too rough. It's still not good to use on a daily basis, and that doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence. Um, but the other interesting thing is going to be the inclusion of the 4xE system uh, that's going to be coming potentially as the en- or as early as the end of 2020. Uh, the 4xE system, if you look back to previous episodes where we talked about things at CES, uh, it's basically taking a hybrid system, like kind of like what you think of uh, that's on um, the RAV4 hybrid. Similar to that, not quite the same. Um, There's still a lot of stuff that we don't quite know yet, Um, but the 4xe system is going to be adapted to the Wrangler, uh, to the Compass, and to the Renegade. I don't know if the Cherokee is getting it quite yet, but it might in the near future. Um, The system basically has a turbocharged gasoline engine, mostly powering the front axle for maximum fuel efficiency. Um, there is some level of hybrid assist from the hybrid system, but the rear axle is only ever powered by, uh, an electric motor. So, Toyota is doing that on the RAV4. Um, they're doing it on the Highlander as well as the Prius. Um, I don't think... No. Yeah, the other ones are, are mechanically operated, but the, uh, there's been a bit of a controversy, I guess is a good way to put it, about the way Toyota's system works, because on the Highlander and the uh, RAV4, it seems to engage pretty well and is able to get you out of sticky situations, but on the Prius, I guess it's almost useless. Um, the, the motor does almost nothing on any kind of extremely slippery surface at an angle or anything like that. Um, presumably, Jeep would have a way to make it work a little bit better, I imagine, to some extent. Uh, that differential uh, on the back would probably be locked when that rear motor activates uh, to get things going, but again, who who's to say at this point? Uh, the other thing is, apparently the system is somehow related to what is underneath the Chrysler Pacifica. Um, that Pacifica system is a weird one, too, where the gasoline engine isn't necessarily directly connected to the everything if i remember correctly so you're driving the Pacifica largely with an electric motor most of the time uh and then the gas engine can kick in to help but i guess that makes it more like a, i don't know i'm confusing myself anyway it's very exciting to know that there is a hybrid version of the Compass coming later this year and i think that could entice some interesting attention to the brand uh you know Jeep's been very hot for a while Um, But I feel like they've lost a little bit of steam in the past year or so simply because they've been so hot for so long. Um, Now Ford is going to do their best to kind of take attention away. Chevy obviously is doing their thing, Uh, Hyundai, Kia, and so much more, but uh, adding this kind of electrified powertrain to their Jeeps, still maintaining that they are equally capable off-road with these systems, uh, in the end I think is going to make them a very compelling choice for a lot of people because in the end no matter how much of an environmentalist you may be, uh, a Jeep is one of a few vehicles that's truly going to get you out into the middle of nowhere, uh, beyond your two feet, and if you can do that on mostly electric power and, you know, help contribute to saving the environment uh, just a little bit more, uh, it's a a smart move to make. And, you know, the other question, of course, is how much of a premium is this going to cost over the standard uh, Compass as well? Uh, I think on the Pacifica, choosing the hybrid option is, like, four or five grand more than the base trim or comparative trim model, Um, but the fuel savings alone within, like, the first year or two, depending on how you use the car, um, would probably offset it. The other thing is you get federal tax credits on top of it, so in the end, it ends up eating away most of that, and in some cases, in some parts of the country, it's actually cheaper to buy the Pacifica Hybrid than it is to buy, um... The base trim Pacifica. So, if that ends up coming to Jeep and being that way, I, I have a feeling it's going to be fairly successful, but um, it's anybody's guess as of late. Uh, the next one worth talking about uh, is one that we've talked about a lot on the show, um, one that I like quite a bit. Another one, again, that I like to go out and drive and really get some mitts on uh, is the Kia Seltos. Uh, the Kia Seltos has been at dealerships now for, I think, about a month and a half, almost two months. Um, I've seen a number of them pop up around West Michigan, and uh, it's been really interesting kind of seeing how things have been going with the Seltos. Uh, first drives were back around end of February, early March. It was right around the time quarantine started and the Seltos got a lot of praise, I think, from those initial tests, uh, when they were testing them down, I think it was outside of Austin or Dallas, Texas, it was sometime, somewhere in Texas, um, but they were large, open, flat roads, um, with a small off-road course, and when I say off-road, I mean, I think they were driving through, like, a zoo, so it was, like, a field, um, with a little dirt trail, um, all of the test vehicles were, um, Seltos SXs uh, with four-wheel drive. Uh, So they were the top trim luxury models. They had a few of the lower trim examples on hand, but they didn't really talk about them much. Uh, Now that we are seeing them out on the street, uh, the interesting thing has been the difference, I think, between the base trim uh, Seltos examples, which there are technically two base trims, Uh, and the top trim ones. Uh, So, here in West Michigan, what we are seeing is a lot of the LX trim, and the LX trim is the true base one, uh, but that one comes with standard all-wheel drive, but it also misses out on a lot of active safety features, a lot of higher-end interior trim appointments that, uh, you know, really kind of demonstrate the Kia knows what people want, and they want a crossover with all-wheel drive for as little money as possible. Uh, this particular thing, I think, uses a two-liter inline-four mated to their IVT, uh, Intelligent Variable Transmission. It's a CVT by any other name. Uh, and it's like, I think it starts at, like, twenty-two or $23,000. It's a pretty solid deal. Um, but the next trim up, which is technically... The base trim as well, to some extent, is the S model. Uh, the S trim is sold uh, initially as a front-wheel drive only vehicle. Um, it uses the same 2-liter engine and IVT transmission, uh, but includes a lot more of the active safety features. It includes a lot more uh, upgrades to the infotainment and many other things. Uh, and costs exactly the same in MSRP. Now, the big thing that's interesting to me is that the S-Trim can have all-wheel drive added for, I think it's like $1,500, and it also includes heated seats, and really ultimately becomes a pretty sweet deal for, you know, I think it's a little bit less than $25,000 out the door, um, all things considered. And, you know, that seems to be the sweet spot. But, like, everything in West Michigan that I've seen for sale so far has been the base trim LX and the top trim SX, and very little in between. Um, I think I've seen two S trims with all-wheel drive, I have seen one EX, which is kind of the, uh, midway point where you don't get the turbocharged engine, um, and the dual clutch trans. are the, sorry, the turbocharged engine and the dual clutch transmission is not available on the EX, um, or no, sorry, I'm getting way too confused here, I apologize, this is bad content for the radio, but nevertheless, like, the trims are just an absolute mess, And it's really kind of unfortunate, too, that when you pick certain trims, you're stuck with certain bits of plastic on the dashboard as well. So the S-trim, it's got like this blue uh, seat stitching and piping that goes through, and then you get this big blue piece of plastic that's in front of the passenger. Um, No matter what color the exterior of the vehicle is, it's blue. Uh, It doesn't matter. And it really just doesn't gel together correctly in a lot of different ways. Uh, the EX trim does add, like, uh, leather seats. There are leatherette seats that do look and feel quite nice, and they add a nice soft touch piece where that blue one was on the S. Um, but then, like, the price jumps up by, like, another, like, $2,500 for really, again, seemingly not a super great reason. Um, you get up into the SX trim, and again, it jumps up quite a bit. You're, you know, you know, you're now spending thirty grand which, I think is really arguably too much for the Seltos, um, but reviews are kind of coming out now, and uh, Business Insider touched on the Celto's, and, you know, they, they applauded how it looks in general, but it's when you start getting up close to it and seeing the smaller details uh, that you can really see that it is actually a very cheap vehicle underneath, and that, you know, the pricing that you're paying for it really isn't too justified um, in many instances, and, you know, again, they were testing an SX turbo all-wheel drive, which, you know, is going to look really nice to the naked eye, and it is a really nice-looking vehicle across the board. I think it's, again, like the Buick Encore GX, one of those vehicles that I think is really appropriately sized uh, in terms of crossover, especially for people like me who are crossover averse. Um, it makes some level of sense. Uh, but in the end, you know, if an SX turbocharged all-wheel drive, you know, doesn't really seem like a good value when it's meant to be the luxury version, uh, that's not really a good spot to be at, uh, especially as this vehicle is launching all across the country, and when you can't get the better priced variants below it in any way, shape, or form, you're gonna have to special order them, that's also a big issue too, because I think in the end, uh, an EX with, you know, just a couple of things, like, carpets, like, putting, like, matted carpets in it, uh, is, like, 27 grand, and, like, that's really crazy to me that the EX costs that much when you, again, dip down to the next one below it. Um, it's under 25 for an SX with a turbo, and you're really not missing too much equipment other than leather seats. So, yeah, uh, it's kind of a weird thing, and I'm really curious to know how the Seltos compares uh, with the 2-liter engine and the CVT versus the 1.6-liter uh, engine with the dual-clutch uh, because, you know, day-to-day driving, I think the lower trim model is going to be the one to go with the with the CVT and the 2-liter. Um, the TFL guys had an upper trim SX model that they took off-roading, and it was already trying to burn up the clutch just going, you know, slow speed up this pretty moderately sized hill. And, you know, we've seen in other tests that TFL has done, other testers have done, that uh, this dual-clutch transmission does not seem to be ready to do some of the things that people need to do it. It's not quite as refined as what it could be off-road, and it really makes me wish that Hyundai and Kia would make an actual automatic transmission for the upper trim models um, that should be a little bit better. Now, apparently, Hyundai-Kia has a new eight-speed dual-clutch unit that's going to be coming out uh, later this year, or early in 2021, for high-performance models that might find its way into other vehicles later on down the road. They're saying it's going to fix a lot of uh, quality issues, a lot of performance issues, and that maybe could help things a little bit, but again, I, if you're going to be stuck in snow, if you're going to be actually dealing with stuff, you know, that, that, that dual-clutch transmission is just not up to snuff to be able to handle it. And it's definitely something that you're going to have to, you know, think about uh, when you're doing stuff in the not-too-distant future. Now, moving on down to two of the last vehicles uh, I wanted to talk about, at least in terms of crossovers, uh, is the Mazda CX-30, which is apparently, again, hitting dealerships right about now. Uh, The CX-30, if you didn't know, is basically just a crossoverized version of the uh, Mazda 3 hatchback. Um, It's got a few little growth... Uh, things all over it that differentiate a little bit, you know, it's a little bit longer, it's a little bit taller, obviously, Um, but in the end, you know, you're getting a package that's meant to be a uh, higher-performance, pseudo-luxury variant uh, in this class that is, I would say, a little, again, very expensive for what it is, you know, I think Mazda's a little less concerned now of competing against Honda and Toyota, and they're kind of sort of chasing after Acura Volvo, uh, BMW, and Mercedes with some other smaller SUVs with things like this. Um, initial impressions, at least based on some early reviews of the CX-30, have been pretty positive. It sounds like they ride and drive pretty well. Um, they might be a little bit harsh for what some people want, but again, it's that Mazda sporty character, uh, that some people really seem to enjoy and that this thing seems to get into. Uh, it does have a pretty good all-wheel drive system that does get stuff figured out, um, Sounds like you got to give it a little bit of throttle for it to know where to put the traction. Um, But, you know, it's a vehicle that, again, you know, is splitting, you know, pieces of pie down to these very minute things that I don't necessarily understand because, of course, uh, the CX-3 is below it, the CX-5 is above it, and the difference between a CX-3 and a CX-30 really isn't that much, and the difference between a CX-30 and a CX-5 isn't that much, Um, but the difference between the CX-3... And the CX-5, I think, is pretty vast, especially as someone who's gotten into the back seat of either one of those vehicles, it's just a weird spot to enter a new thing. And, you know, I think a a big part of that is, you know, they've got this very good platform with, you know, very good engines and transmissions, and they've got very good interior moldings that they want to keep using and to keep selling to recoup some costs. And in the end, I think the CX-30 is going to be a pretty popular vehicle for a very specific set of buyers, but I don't know if I could necessarily justify the cost of it versus the Kia Seltos even. Um, you know, it it just seems like it's very, very expensive for what it is, and yes, it is very, very nice, and it's going to be very comfortable, If you're going to be doing any kind of long-distance traveling. I think the Mazda is a very good choice, but it's also compromised in different ways, too. I really don't like the infotainment setup that they have in their cars. They are not touchscreen units. You have to use this little controller in the center console that I, I just don't feel works very well. Um, You know, I, I like their... The vehicle's overall look, but based on how small volume they are, I imagine it's going to be very expensive to insure. I imagine it's going to be very expensive to repair if anything breaks just because of that. Uh So... Yeah, I I love Mazda with all my heart, but I just don't really have a spot for it for the CX-30, at least for me, uh, because you can get all of the bits and bobs that are underneath it in the Mazda 3 hatchback, and despite that C-pillar, um, you know, I, I would still rather have that than the CX-30 myself. Uh, the last one that I wanted to touch on is the all-new, well, I shouldn't really say all-new, uh, it's... It's the Toyota uh, RAV4 TRD off-road. Um, very long name. Uh, not very long in terms of off-road performance. Uh, these vehicles have now gone out to testers recently. They've done a little bit of off-roading. And in the end, you know, you're getting a forerunner that or sorry, not a forerunner, uh a RAV4 that. <sighs> maybe slightly bumps up the needle in terms of what it's capable of compared to, say, the Adventure model that slots in beneath it. Uh, But we're talking about fractions of capability more. Um, Really, the TRD Off-Road is more of a looks package, I think, than anything else. Uh, Toyota mentioned that this vehicle is being built and designed for people who are trying to get up a little bit more of a difficult path uh, to a trailhead uh, than what the Adventure or maybe a more normal LE or XLE uh, RAV4 would have been able to do. Um, More or less, what's included with this is you're taking the Adventure model, which already had a retuned suspension and a slightly more aggressive uh, tuning for the um, all-wheel drive system. Uh, They're moving it up to the off-road package where they get uh, some better Falcon off-road tires, uh, and it gets a uh, TRD-tuned rally-inspired uh, suspension that's got uh, red coilovers and uh, it's supposed to be, you know, a little bit more absorbent of bumps and other things uh, going down a dirt path. But, uh, you know, this thing isn't going to climb a mountain by any means. Uh, it does not have locking differentials. Uh, it is using the traction control system to push power from one end of the vehicle to the other. Um, You know, it it can do some dirt work, it can get up some angles, it can get to some things that perhaps are a little bit more complicated than what a regular RAV4 could handle, but you know, you're paying a lot more for a vehicle that, you know, really you could buy an adventure model or probably a lower trim variant. Put a good set of tires on it and go off-road and probably do most of what the off-road model could handle. Um for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars less, uh, you know, that being said, I think the TRD Off-Road RAV4 looks really good with the blacked-out grille, the blacked-out badging, uh, you know, the, the pronounced fender arches with the plastic cladding, you know, the wheels, the TRD wheels look good on everything that they've gone on in the past few years, um, But I just don't know if I could justify that additional cost. And, you know, with the Bronco Sport coming out, uh, I think it's going to look a lot more silly than what it means to look uh, going forward, just because the Bronco Sport is probably going to be a little bit better off-road. And, you know, if the Bronco Sport's going to be going toe-to-toe to to some extent with the uh, Trailhawk Jeeps of the uh, Compass and the Cherokee, you know that really kind of shoves them up into a different class. That's you know still another step or two ahead of this off-road package, uh, Toyota. So, you know I'd love to see Toyota do more with this platform, uh, with this vehicle. You know it is the number one selling passenger vehicle in the United States. That's not a pickup truck. Um, there is definitely a lot of money I think to be shaken out of that tree as they continue to point that vehicle in different directions. We do have the plug-in hybrid. Uh, RAV4 Prime coming out soon, which I think is going to be a very interesting addition to this end of the marketplace, but into the off-road scape, you know, there's there's definitely some work that they could do to make it just a little more capable, and, you know, adding those off-road suspensions uh, typically do improve uh, road comfort just a little bit to some extent, so that might be a smarter way to go, because as we're seeing Jeep now get into, uh, not only the Rubicon that's getting on, you know, rock climbing and all those kinds of things, they now have the Moab models that are kind of going after what the Raptor does and, you know, the Raptor off-road is very capable climbing up things, uh, but that that desert runner suspension is going to be very soft and supple out on the highway and uh, putting something like that on a RAV4 isn't the worst idea. So, yeah, uh, between all those that I've kind of talked about here when it turns to actually spending your own money, you know, I think it's really kind of up to you. You know, you got to set some boundaries as to where you think you need to draw the line in terms of what a vehicle this size should cost, should include, uh, and should be able to do. Uh, because in the end, you know, boundaries are always getting pushed for, uh, Where things are at in the automotive industry. And we continue to see the average transaction price for a new car uh, get pushed higher and higher and higher. I think it was like 36 something last year. Um, That's up from 32 or 33 grand that it was a couple of years before. Um, It's vehicles like these crossovers that continue to push that boundary further because Ford, GM, Chrysler, Toyota, Honda, whomever, feel like they can charge more for these vehicles because not only are they in demand, but I think regular buyers go, well, it's bigger, well, it has four-wheel drive, yes, I should be paying more, even though in actuality, in the case of the Mazda CX-30, it's literally the same thing as the regular hatchback, it just has a slight increase on the suspension uh, in terms of ride height. So, you know, be smart when you're shopping. I think, you know, if I'm looking to spend $30,000 on any one of these things, uh, I think in the end you know, you're not even going to be able to buy the RAV4 at that price, the RAV4 off-road. Um, I think that's going to be, you know, mid, low mid-40s, I think, more than likely, is where that price point is probably going to end up landing. Um, the Bronco Sport might touch, you know, high 20s to start for a Badlands model, but, you know, you're probably going to be running somewhere in the 30s there uh, to get, you know, more more standard features, more things that people might think that they want. Uh, the Jeep, Compass we've already seen kind of run the gamut between the low 20s to the mid-30s, um, which is crazy considering that the Cherokee, again, like I said, is only a couple grand more. Uh, the the Buick Encore GX and the Trailblazer all kind of march within the the low 20s for the Chevy on up to the mid-30s for the Buick. Uh, it, it's a big gamut. And I, I really feel like when it comes to spending your money, getting a good deal, having it last you know, five, six, ten years, I feel like the Kia is probably going to be the better one of the bunch. I mean, obviously the Toyota, for sure, but, uh, you know, if you're trying to spend thirty grand, I I think the Kia is going to be one of the ones to keep an eye out for and to watch over, um, just because, you know, Kia, and they've really been on a roll, uh, they're including a lot of really great standard features that, in some cases, aren't even options on some of the other vehicles until you cross, the thirty thousand dollar threshold or higher, um, they really have stepped up their game quite a bit. Now that being said, base trims of the Rav4 now have standard Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Um, they still have a great safety suite standard uh, in a lot of these Toyotas. Um, you know, a base trim Rav4 would not be a bad place to go, but it might not be quite as nice as some of these newer vehicles um, because the Rav4 has been around for two years now. So. Yeah, I think the Kia Seltos is still the one I would generally recommend. I'm really curious to know what the Chevy Trailblazer is going to be like in person. I've only seen locked prototype vehicles uh, at car shows up close, so that's not really a good place to go. I really like the Buick Encore GX, but that's playing to a different market altogether. So, yeah. Anyway, that is small crossover talk that I have gone on entirely too long about. So, uh, after the bump, uh, we'll kind of wrap a few things up. Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salva Shida podcast for Saturday, June 6, 2020. Uh, if you want to follow along with me on the social media platforms, uh, you can do so. I am at YSSMAN on Twitter. Uh, and you can follow along with episodes of this show at uh, anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, if you type those two words, salvage title, into uh, really any podcasting platform, uh, you can pull us up, whether it's Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, Pocket I I'm running out of platforms that podcasts are listened to on. Uh you can uh, do so there. Uh we post it uh for free uh just because you know that's what we do because we love you very much. Uh anyway guys uh things that are going on in the next couple of weeks, uh who who knows? Things could be changing rapidly uh as the as the economy opens up here in Michigan, in air quotes, however you want to say that, uh, you know, things could get pretty exciting pretty soon. So We'll keep in touch. Anyway, guys, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your weekend, and we will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.